This morning, I want to ask Kyle Landis to come. For some of you who don't know, or if you're visitors, we are Fellowship North. We are a part of a larger network of kind of the fellowship of churches. There are, all, there are three, uh, almost four, campuses um, in, the net, in this network. It's Fellowship Middlebrook, it's Fellowship North, Fellowship Pellissippi, where Kyle uh, serves as one of the pastors on staff there, and then soon to be Fellowship North, I mean Fellowship uh, North Shore. Uh, We've got to do something about that. Uh, Fellowship North Shore, and uh, you will actually be hearing from the pastor who's planning that campus in March here. Uh, so I'm excited for you to hear that. But Kyle's here this morning as the, he plays a dual role. While he is on staff at the Pellissippi campus as, their, as one of the pastors there, he is also the multiplication pastor. Uh, Fellowship Middlebrook had a vision years ago to multiply and plant campuses, and, and we are a fruit of that vision. Uh, and Kyle came on to execute and move that plan forward because he has a sincere heart to do that and experience doing that. And so Kyle is here this morning as the multiplication pastor. And in so many ways, whether you know it or not, uh, behind the scenes, he, he is one of your pastors. Uh, whether you know his name or not, the things that he's doing and the things that he is working on and the things that we are working on together and all the pastors matter to our community. And that's the context of which he's here. So I would like for you just to welcome him as he addresses us this morning. Thanks, brother. Uh, Michael just gave me permission to talk to you uh, the way that I would talk to our congregation at Pellissippi, so I'm really looking forward to this morning. It was four o'clock in the morning, and I'll never forget it. I had stepped into a cold, dark, concrete manufacturing facility. I was going to learn that morning what it took to build large concrete structures made of precast. And my job, I had just gotten hired on as the regional sales manager for a specific line of products, and I thought if I was going to sell these products, I better figure out how to make them. So the next several weeks, I learned a lot about concrete, more than you probably ever want to know. I learned how to pour concrete. I learned how to put rebar in the forms. I learned how to spray the forms down. I learned how to cut the styrofoam inserts for specialty products. I learned so much about concrete that I was able to walk into the plant day after day and begin to act like the foremen and the men and the women working in that building. I learned about rebar and steel. I learned about mesh concrete mixes. I learned what it took to take these large, huge concrete products and move them from the plant out into the yard and wait for them to cure. I learned a ton about concrete, and it was important for me because if I was going to sell it, I was going to need to know exactly what it took to manufacture, construct, and move around. But one of the biggest things that I learned about uh, concrete is that when you are in a manufacturing facility, there is something that is incredibly important to everybody, and that is safety. Safety first. Everybody was concerned with safety. I had pants. I had my steel-toed boots on. I had my safety goggles. I wore my orange safety vest so they saw me coming. I was dead set on making sure that I didn't break any of the rules because everybody was concerned with safety. There were signs everywhere, safety first. We learned how to use the eye-washing station. We learned how to walk, uh, lock out machinery so nobody got hurt. There were signs like this. These weren't the signs, but I found them on Google, and I liked them a lot. 
There were signs all over. There was, a, there was a sign actually from the lunchroom into the plant that counted how many days we had with no accidents. Safety was a top priority. We even actually had a man that worked in our company. This was my favorite sign. This wasn't in there either. I just thought it'd be fun to show. We had a man in the facility who was, his only job was to make sure everybody stayed safe. Well, you know, I think about that, and that safety in that culture inside of that manufacturing plant also becomes a theme in other areas of our lives, right? We begin to think about safety in other areas of our lives. Parents, you know what it's like to think about safety, right? When I was a child, I hopped on my bike with no shoes, no shirt, and I went tearing down the driveway to go to my friend's house. Now, if I send my kid on their bike without shoes and knee pads and elbow pads and a helmet and safety goes, whatever it is, I got to make sure that my child is taken care of or I'm the neighborhood pariah, right? We're so concerned about safety as parents. We put training wheels on tricycles. We're worried about them going in the swimming pool. It's like we're practically wrapping these kids in bubble wrap as they leave our homes because we're so concerned with safety. But it's not just at home. I love this comic. It says, of course, daddy, and I don't mind you pillow fighting as long as you wear your government-approved pillow fighting helmet, goggles, and pads. But also, our government's concerned about safety, right? They make all these new safety standards. Uh, If you're my age, you remember sitting in the back of your parents' car facing backwards with no seatbelt. My dad had a truck, you're shaking your heads. My dad had a truck where behind the front seat, I was sitting sideways in this jump seat looking across at my sister who was facing back and my brother who was three was on the floor, right? It it was, back then we didn't, we weren't so concerned with safety. Now, we've got these crazy standards. Like, have you seen the Tennessee state laws for booster seats. It's like you've got to be 48 inches and 180 pounds. Most of you probably should still be in a booster seat, is the point. But we're so concerned about safety. We're concerned about safety in our lives. We're concerned about getting the right insurances, making sure we have the right nest egg, making sure that everything that we do, we've created this bubble around ourselves because we want to stay safe. And the reason why we want to stay safe is because when we're safe, it brings us comforts. And the truth is, is we all strive to be comfortable. We don't want to do something that's risky. The risks that we take are calculated. Yes, I might make that investment, but if that doesn't work, I've got something here on the side that will save us. I might step into this job. I'm not sure this is the right job to take, but I've got a backup plan. We're all about insuring everything. We insure our house, our car, our washing machine, our TVs. We always want to have a backup plan because we want to be comfortable. And the truth is, is that that theme, that mentality has permeated the church as well. We've we've got churches all over the world today where the pastors and the leaders are concerned about making their churches comfortable so that people will feel comfortable. The, The temperature will be right. The coffee will be perfect. The lighting is right on. The LED screens work. Why? Because these pastors and these church leaders are worried. Are my people comfortable? All of a sudden, it forces leaders and pastors to talk differently to make sure that we can balance between being comfortable and still sticking with the gospel of Jesus. And I would submit to you this morning that if we want to try to follow Jesus and to live a life of comfort, we're going to have to neglect one or the other. 
And the truth is, is that Jesus and his claim to his early disciples, which is the exact claim to us today, was anything but comfortable. It was anything but safe. And the truth is, is when we talk about multiplying churches and disciple makers, that is anything but comfortable and safe. And we try to remain comfortable because we are afraid. This morning, I'd like to say to you that fear is the enemy of multiplication. And if we, as a group of Christians, allow fear to get in our way, it will keep us from living out the gospel, it will keep us from communicating the gospel, and it will keep us from multiplying the gospel. So thanks so much for inviting me this morning. If you're a guest, uh, I guess I should apologize. Mike will be back here next week so I don't chase you away today. But it is my job to help build up multiplying disciple makers. My job at Fellowship Church is to help churches like North begin to plant other churches in other areas, begin to raise up disciple makers who want to multiply their faith. And we don't plant churches for the sake of planting churches. We plant churches because we think it is one of the best ways to make disciples. And so this morning, I want to share with you what's on my heart and my concern for the 21st century Knoxville Church and for my worry of what happens if we as a group of Christians allow fear to get in the way to what God is calling us to do with his church. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Father, I love these people. I love standing here and watching you stir in the hearts, baptism and communion. Lord, I just trust that you bring us your word this morning. God, that you would take the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth off of our hearts and our minds that we can bring you the worship that you deserve. Lord, help us to not be afraid. Help us to step into this mission that you've called us to be in. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Let me build a couple foundations for us before we get into this. A Christian is called to make disciples, all right? I've got a couple foundational statements. I want to make sure that we got this. A Christian is called to make disciples. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, you have figured out there's a bunch of things that I need to do as a follower of Jesus, right? You probably tell the truth. You do your best not to steal. You try to be trustworthy. But one of those things that Jesus gave for us, one of the last things that Jesus gave for us to do was make disciples. So if you call yourself a Christian, and I call myself a Christian, one of the number one priorities that must be in my life is that I am making disciples. That I am investing and mentoring in younger believers and other believers and maybe unbelievers that they would come to or become more like Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, I would ask you the question, who are you discipling? Who on this planet would say, I am being discipled by her, by him? That is a priority. All Christians are called to make disciples. Now, the second one is this. A disciple is someone who lives, communicates, and multiplies their faith. All Christians are called to make disciples, but a disciple is one who lives, communicates, and multiplies their faith. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have the responsibility to make disciples. And if you are making disciples, your number one priority is to help those disciples not be pointed to you, but be pointed to Jesus. And by doing so, you're going to help them to live out their faith in worship to God. You're going to help them communicate the gospel, the saving knowledge of Jesus. And you're going to help them multiply their faith that they may be discipling others. Now, my concern is this. Fear becomes the greatest enemy to all of these things. The reason why we don't live out our faith is we're afraid. 
The reason why we don't communicate our faith is because we're afraid. The reason why we don't multiply our faith is because we're afraid. And we're afraid for a couple of reasons, right? We're not afraid maybe that we're going to get picked on at work because we work with Christians. We're afraid we're not going to have the right thing to say. We're afraid if I step into a disciple-making relationship, what if I ruin them? Trust me, I've ruined plenty of disciples. But we get, we get afraid. We get scared. And what happens is, is because we want to be comfortable, we step away from those areas. We want to be safe. We want to create a bubble around us. And the truth is, is that is in complete opposition to what Jesus called for us to do in our lives. If you've got your Bibles, turn open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to spend most of our time here. Mark chapter 8. Uh, he, let me give you the background of this specific scene. I'll walk through it. We won't read it all, but I'll walk through it so we get on the right page. Jesus takes his disciples, Mark chapter 8. Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's about 35 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. You go up there, you can see this area today. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a place during first century of great idol worship. It was the worst, that's where they went to worship Baal. That's where the pan gods of the Greek gods began to be worshiped. Everything that you can consider in the false god category is being worshiped at Caesarea Philippi. As a matter of fact, there is a well inside of the cleft of a mountain that goes deep into the earth, and people believed that that well was a hole that went straight to Hades, and that if, if uh, demons were going to come out of hell, they were going to come out of that well as a matter of fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi and, and he says the words, even the gates of Hades won't hold back our church. He was talking about that hole. And so he brings these people, he brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he, he's taking them on this field trip and he has that first moment, remember Matthew chapter 16, 18, where he says, gentlemen, I hear you talking about people are talking about me. What are they saying about me? And the disciples step forward. They say, they, you're John the Baptist. You're like, good, good. Then he says, disciples, who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in Matthew 16, 18, it's the moment where Jesus uses the word church for the first time in our scriptures. He says, Peter, you're right. And on this rock, on this message, on the gospel of what you just communicated, I will build my church. The word church comes from the Greek term ekklesia. The Greek word ekklesia can be translated my gathering of people. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're right. I brought you up here because I want to talk to you about something. I want to build a new ekklesia. I want to build a new group of people that are called out for the sole purpose of the gospel. And I'm going to start with you. So Jesus calls the disciples into something spectacular. Jesus calls these men to be a part of something they've never seen before. Then we fast forward now to Mark 8, verse 34. He begins to give them instructions and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, so he gathers lots of people around, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The writer of this gospel, Mark, 
wants to make sure that the readers who read this, his version of Jesus, who read his gospel of Jesus, he wants to make abundantly clear, this is what Jesus was calling you to do if you're going to call yourself one of his disciples. All future readers, by the way, that includes us, Mark wants to be absolutely sure that we are aware that this is the calling that Jesus put on the disciples' lives. These are the words that Jesus used to say, okay, I'm going to build a new ecclesia. You're going to be my disciples, and if you follow me, this is what's going to happen. And Mark wanted to make sure that we understood those words as his disciples. But it wasn't just Mark, right? Matthew Luke, John, everyone, all of the gospel writers wanted to make abundantly clear that you and I understood what it meant to step into a relationship with Jesus and follow him and call ourselves his disciples. Matthew says it this way, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke says it this way, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And John, the one whom Jesus loved, says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is no confusion here. There is no confusion for the disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of these gospels are making sure that we are well aware of what it means to follow Jesus. Mark wants to make it abundantly clear. So, if it is true, if we believe that the gospel writers wanted 21st century North Knoxville folks to understand this, then let's pick it apart, right? So let's go back. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says three things in here. If you've got your Bible, you can highlight this, underline it. He says three things. If you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself, number one. Number two, you're going to take up your cross. And number three, you're going to follow me. Now, this passage probably didn't catch you off guard this morning. Most of us are well aware of this passage. Maybe we've got it on a calendar in our office. Maybe a a part of this is on a coffee mug on our desk. You've heard this message before. I've heard this message before. And when I hear Jesus saying to me, Kyle, I want you to take up your cross, I hear that. I understand that. But the cross that I think about and the cross that these disciples think about are very different. They're very different. We wear crosses around our necks. We've got them on our Bible covers. If you're, if you're a really good Christian, you've got one hanging from your mirror in your car. We have crosses as symbols all over the place because the cross is a symbol to us of who Jesus is and his death and resurrection that we may be reconciled to God. The cross is a picture of victory for us. The cross is a picture of our sin being taken away and us stepping into holiness with God. It's a picture of baptism. And so the cross to us, we see it all over the place. We draw it, we have it hanging all over the place. But the cross to these disciples is not the same as the cross is to us. It's just not the same. No, the the cross to the disciples was different. The cross, it was a picture of, of anguish of ridicule, of embarrassment, death, pain. Murderers hung on crosses. The picture of the cross is, you know, when, when you nailed someone to a cross and you, you erected that pole for everybody to see, you didn't die of blood loss. 
It wasn't like blood was coming out of your hands and your feet and you, you just eventually passed out. No, no, you died of exhaustion. You died of suffocation. They would nail your hands to the cross and they would nail your feet and you would dangle from that cross and your lungs would be collapsed. And with all the strength that you've got inside of you, you would push up on your feet so you could get a breath with all the energy you had left and you would sag back down again and you would begin to be choked and suffocated. And you would do that for hours and days. You would dangle there trying to breathe. Some people would hang on a cross so long that wild dogs would come up and begin to gnaw at their feet. The picture of the cross for us is way different than the picture of the cross for these early disciples. Imagine today if we hung electric chairs around our neck. See, the cross for the disciples is anguish, pain, death, dying. And Jesus says, I want you to pick yours up and I want you to follow me. I can't even imagine what those men felt in that moment. I don't know if you know this, but before the time of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, Christians were extremely reticent about portraying the cross because too open a display of it might expose them to ridicule or danger. It's not only till after Constantine converted to Christianity, he abolished crucifixion as a death penalty. And that's when the symbol then after 350 became a part of Christian art. You see, the disciples were not confused as to what they were getting into. I would suggest that it got even worse than they thought it would be. But we as Christians in 21st century Knoxville, we hear that message and then we try to balance it with safety and comfort. We, we, yeah, man, that does sound bad. But, but we can have it both ways. That's, that's what we try to do. We try to balance safety and comfort and this incredible calling that is put on his life. The disciples were well aware of what they're getting into. Jesus wasn't sugarcoating anything. Jesus was making it well aware to them. It reminds me of this guy. This is Giuseppe Gibaldi. You probably don't know him. I didn't either until I researched him. But there's something neat about him. He was an Italian general in the 1800s. And Giuseppe was called often to defend the Italian army, to lead the charge. And there was one specific moment in Italian history where they were defending Montevideo, and they were losing this battle. And the, the governors of Italy realized, the leaders of Italy realized, we've got to do something about this or we're going to lose control. And so they went and found the best guy they could, and they found Giuseppe. And they said, Giuseppe, here's what we need. We need you to help recruit a group of men that will rescue us, that will save this moment, that will protect us in this conquest. And Giuseppe was a straightforward type of guy. And they said, the downfall is, is we're not even sure we can win this thing but you got to go recruit soldiers to follow you. And so he went into the marketplace, and he stood in the marketplace, and this was his recruiting tool. He said this, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country in his heart, and not only with his lips, follow me. Soldiers, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger, thirst, hardship, and death. But I call on all who love their country to join with me. And would you believe men came running forward to that? Look, there was no confusion for these people joining Giuseppe 
in this march. Yeah, we, we're still going to get three meals a day, right? And time on the playground. No, they were well aware of what they were getting into. You know, I see uh, military advertisements today. You see, like, people jumping out of airplanes, and you see, like, the Navy where they're, like, scuba diving in these incredible places. And I'm 40, and I think, man, I'd like to go try that sometime. But those of you who have been in the armed forces know it is nothing like what they show in the commercials. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. It's uncomfortable. So Jesus says... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's not like he eases up. Okay, guys, I want you to to grab your cross and follow me. And it's not like he eases up. Okay, let's take a break. Let's talk about sports for a moment. No, no, he doubles down. He says, okay, now, by the way, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. This is crazy. This doesn't even make sense to us in the world that we live. See, in our world, we've got the desire to save our lives, so what do we do? We hold it together. We protect it. We want to save our lives, we hoard it. We create a bubble around us and our families, right? We want to save our lives, we keep everything we can close to us. But Jesus goes and throws a a whole new equation at us. Here, Here are the two equations. My desire to save my life equals a lost life. That's what Jesus is saying. My desire to save my life equals a lost life. But Jesus says, here's the equation I want my followers to live by. God's desire to give my life away equals a saved life. Jesus says, you want to save your life? Give it away. It's not yours. Give it away. You want to save your life? Give it away. That's what Jesus is saying to his early disciples. And all of the gospel writers wanted to remind all future readers, if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is not going to be comfortable. He says two things. He says, it's going to be risky and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I would suggest to you that if we are going to follow Jesus and still try to create a life of comfort and ease, we're going to have to neglect one or the other. See, the truth is, is that everything that we've been given by God is a gift. Every good and perfect gift that we have is from God. All that money that we've got amassed in our bank accounts, these, these big cars, these great houses, Jesus says, give it away. All of your talents, all of your abilities, your skills, your, we have such an incredibly intelligent community. Jesus says, give it away. Not for your sake, but for mine. His equation is, is I have given you all of these things, not that you would hoard and protect for your own comfort, but that you would give it away. That doesn't sound very good to me. I, I worked hard for that money, give it away. But I'm super smart, give it away. I got a great job, give it away. But you know why I don't give it away? I'm scared. And fear becomes the enemy to multiplication. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us, right? Like, remember this. The goal is not to feel guilty when we listen to Jesus' words. We're not giving it away because we're like, well, Jesus told us to. We're giving it away because he's invited us on an adventure with him. He's invited us to be in something incredible that we don't get to be the story, but we get to be a part of the story. We're not giving it away because we feel guilty. We're giving it away because that displays his kingdom. And he said, give it away. But what does that look like in my daily routine? 
What, what does it mean for me to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Let me give you four examples. On the far right there is uh, Carla Franklin. Carla lives up in Rocky Top, Lake City. I don't know what we call it. But Carla started a ministry to adult entertainment groups. She goes into strip clubs to share the gospel. Carla takes them dinners and meals. Carla makes them gifts. She buys them presents for their birthday. Carla takes things into these strip clubs to give to these women's children, all for the sake of the gospel. You don't think it was uncomfortable for Carla the first night she walked into her first strip club? You don't think she was scared? You don't think she wondered what people were thinking about her? This is Terry Purdy. He lives in West Knoxville. Terry, five days a week, walks in his local park. Lots of people walk and run in this community, and he does it for one sole purpose, that he would strike up a conversation with a stranger, that he would share the gospel. Terry's on his last pacemaker heart. He, he has no drugs that he can take left. He is on his way out, and he said, with every beat of my heart left, I'm going to share the good news of Jesus. Recently, Terry was on a park bench with a woman communicating the gospel, and she committed her life to following Jesus. You don't think it was uncomfortable for Terry the first day he walked into that park to start sharing the good news of Christ? This is Brandon and Whitney Hollis. They've been married for a couple years. They're young, they're in love, and most young and love couples like to spend time together, right? Listen, if, if you have kids, you know, man, I wish I could go back to that don't say that out loud. But you know what you're thinking. My kids are here. I shouldn't have done that. But I remember when I'm young and in love and I don't have kids, I want to spend every moment together. But Brandon and Whitney don't do that. They've been married a couple years, and they've decided we're going to use our free time to care for this little girl. This girl's name is Alasia. Alasia's dad is in prison, and Alasia's mom is a single parent. And Brandon and Whitney went to her home and said, we'd like to help you raise Alasia. And so periodically they go and they pick her up. They take her for the weekend. They take her hiking. They teach her how to do the dishes. They do the laundry together. They, do, they help her with her homework. But don't you think a young couple that was just married should be spending their free time together and building their marriage? Don't you think it was uncomfortable when they showed up at Elijah's door and said, we'd like to take your daughter for the weekend? Scary. For the sake of the gospel, give it away. This is my last example. This is Matt Dillon. He works at our Middlebrook campus. Matt suffered through a, a really hard divorce about four years ago. And it was devastating. Matt has three kids. His wife walked out. And it sent him into a tailspin where he really had to wrestle with who is God to me and what is God calling me to do. After a year or so, Jesus picked him up and dusted him off and got him back on the horse. And now, Matt uses his free time to care for other men who are also going through similar divorces. He spends his weekend with other men who are fighting through the same problems that he fought through, the same worries and fears and concerns. Matt spends his weekends with other men caring for them. Now, if I were Matt, I'd be spending my weekends finding another girl. Not Matt. He's giving it away for the sake of the gospel. So what does it look like in your own life? What does it look like in your own life? What are the things that we're hoarding for ourselves? What are the things that we're keeping for ourselves? Who are the people right around us that we are called to be faithful to? Look, we're not talking about big leaps. You're not all called to walk into the strip club. You're not all called to go care for someone whose mom or dad are in prison. But we are called to be faithful of the people around us. 
Maybe it means at lunch, instead of sitting by yourself every day, you invite someone to join you for the sake of the gospel. Every Saturday, you've got the same group of people coming into your home to watch the UT games. What if you told your friends, hey, not this weekend. This weekend, I'm inviting my neighbors into my house. This week, I'm inviting my, my coworkers into my house. What would your friends say? Be uncomfortable. But if we are going to call ourselves Christians, then we need to be ready to live out our faith, communicate our faith, and multiply our faith. Now, the simple question that everybody gives is, why? Why would I do that? Right? Some of you are thinking that. Maybe I just let you off the hook because you've been wondering, why? Why would I, why would I give it away? Well, Jesus asked a very similar question of his disciples later in a passage in John. He had just given another one of these messages to the crowd and to the disciples saying, if you're going to follow me, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not going to be safe. And all of a sudden, as he's teaching this message, you can just see the crowd disappearing from him. They're not going to stick around for that. And I envision it this way. Jesus is walking along and he turns back and there's his 12 disciples still following him. And he asks a question like this, which is, aren't you guys going to leave too? You heard what I said. Aren't you going to go? And Peter, my favorite disciple, says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this guy. Jesus, where would we go? If we left you, what would we do? You're the only one that has the message of eternal life. Jesus, I'm in. Where, where would we go? The answer to your question, why, is this. Jesus is better. He's better than anything you give away. He's better than anything that you hoard. He's better than anything that you hold on to yourself. He is better than safety. He is better than comfort. Jesus is better. And like Peter, we should say, Jesus, where, where would I go? So here's my challenge for our congregation in North Knox. We're not kidding anybody. Look around. Look what God is doing with his church in Fountain City. L look what God is doing. I shouldn't have even come up and taught today. We should have done the baptism and the communion and just gone out for coffee. That's what this is about, that we would see people make commitments to following Jesus and look around. We've got a group of incredible people with lots of talents and tons of resources. And Jesus is saying, North Knox, give it away. Give it away. That's what multiplication is. Multiplication is giving it away. We need to be ready as a church to be willing to give it away. Not just some. We need to be willing to give our best away. Are we willing to give away our best people to see a new church that's born in South Knox or Powell or, or Strawberry Plains? Are we willing to give away our best people, our best leaders? Are we willing to give away our pastors that we may see the gospel flourish and grow in other areas outside of Fountain City? Are we willing to give up of our elders? Are we willing to give up of our best musicians, our life group leaders, our drummers? We're not giving away our drummers. All right, we've got to hold on to something. Are we willing to give it away? Because here's what happens. We become a country club 
We become a group of people who continue to love Jesus and we just hoard ourselves and hold it together and Jesus is saying, uh-uh, 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 give it away. And North Knox, you guys are ready. You are equipped. You've got the people. You've got the leadership. You've got the resources. You've got the elders. You've got everything that you need. Now it's time to give it away. It's time for us to step up and to start stepping in areas that are uncomfortable and that aren't safe. We might have to take a risk. There are people in communities all over Knoxville today who would die to have a church like this one. And we have the opportunity to supply that. That the gospel would grow and flourish and multiply. Five years ago, this church was full of 20, 25 people. And Jesus said, I will build my church and you guys watched him do it. But what's going to hold us back from multiplication is if we get scared. If we become afraid and if fear wells up inside of us. Friends, this is the challenge Jesus is giving to us. We've been called to take up our cross, to follow him, and to give it away. And I cannot wait to give the report back to my friends at Pellissippi about what God is doing at this church. I can't wait. I can't wait to show them because I want you to know something. Being the lead pastor of our Pellissippi campus that's meeting right now in Carnes High School, we are watching you. We're watching you take the lead. You are setting the standard, and I promise you, we will follow. But somebody's got to change the pattern, and somebody's got to step out, even though it's scary and it's uncomfortable. And us at Pellissippi, we're hoping that you guys lead the charge to give it away. Would you pray with me? Father, none of this stuff is ours. And I know I got carried away. Lord, but I want to see you continue to grow your kingdom, and I want to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, I want to see lost people come running to you because of just what Peter said. Where would we go? Jesus, you are better we love you. We do this because of you. We bring these things to your feet. We trust you with them. And God, we're going to admit this is scary and uncomfortable, but we trust you. Lord, would you do a work with us in this church, in the fellowship of churches? Father, would you give us the courage to lead the charge? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'll work with Kyle on expression and passion, so he'll be a little bit more animated next time. We all have areas of growth, Kyle. Uh, you, you, you probably got a glimpse as to what he brings to the table behind the scenes, right? I will tell you that the theme of our elder retreat this weekend was multiplication. It's what we started off with our heart and our vision. Our heart and our vision was never to grow large. It was to grow out. Because we really, really buy in to the idea that it is the best way to watch people step up and step out of their comfort zone and step into things they would never step into if they just stay in a body with the same people doing the same stuff 
and growing large and getting comfortable. You have heard me say, hopefully, on many occasions, I think the Christian life, when you become a Christian, there are things that you have to withdraw from most of us. There are things you have to change in what you do and who, who you hang out with to a certain extent. You have to do some version of separate yourself and learn what this new life is about. But it's never this, this permanent isolation, separation type thing. Paul went away for three years and 14 years. Maybe the 14 encompasses the three, depending on how you read the context. But for a long time, spent learning Jesus. Oh, Lord, teach me your ways. Only to step back in to literally giving everything that he had been given away. And there's this place in your Christian life that where you will literally, I don't care how many Bible studies you do, I don't care how much biblical language that you know. I don't care what, what you intake. There is this place in your Christian life where the intake without output causes you to hit a glass ceiling. And you will become discontent. You will have questions about why am I not growing? Why is this happening in my life? Why am I not? And it is, will be because there is not this aspect of serving or giving away what it is you have that, by the way, creates the flow of going right back to Jesus to get more of him that you never could have gotten if you didn't give what you already had away. I tell young couples, if you want to do anything for the betterment of your marriage, do ministry together. You know what doing ministry together will do? It will cause you to be stretched, challenged, it will, it will cause you to divest of yourself and you'll have to go back to the Father for resource and replenishment. And it will bring out of you things that would never bring out of you if you weren't doing it. It's a depletion so that you have more room to be filled up. That's the process. You pour out, you fill up, you pour out, fill up that is the heart of that is the that is the essence of following Jesus the more places you go that you don't know the answers to with regards to how we're going to where are we going how are we going to get there and what are we going to do when we get there causes you to depend upon Jesus and I said to you last week when I encouraged you in Psalm 1 what we do corporately has everything to do with how you live and what you do as individuals. What we cannot and will not do is force anything by God's grace and protection. It will depend upon the individuals that are raised up by God with conviction to multiply, to go. And I can tell you that that is what we are praying for and praying about and leading toward somehow, some way. And we would covet your continued prayers in that direction. Thank you, Kyle.